O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So as you've heard, if you'd open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to continue in our series. If you don't have a Bible with you, we do have some up front here on the side table here. Um, And of course, you might have a phone or a tablet where you could open uh, the Bible and be with us. I really encourage, we do it every week. I always say, open your Bibles, please. And it's kind of because I have this expectation that you might just do that. And and the reason for that is it's good. We, We need to be in it, not just here on Sunday, but in it, looking at it. And I encourage you to mark it up. It's a hard thing to do that on tablets and, and uh, iPhones and things like that, I know. But having a printed Bible and mark it up and, and put notes in there and even question marks is a great thing. It's a great thing to be able to go deeper in God's Word and learn. So a little bit of a recap for you as you're here today. Um, the title of the series that we've given to the series is called The Pursuit of Liberty. And we really haven't talked a lot about that since the first week or two because uh, we've been going deeply into this letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian churches way back a couple thousand years ago. And, uh, but that is the overall arching theme of the letter. And, and so as we've gotten to this point, I'm just wanting to r- remind us of that because it's about freedom, right? And not like we looked at in the first couple of weeks, the freedom that our world thinks about, which is really a freedom from responsibility, right? And a freedom from work and a freedom from the man and things like that. No, this, this is freedom from the things that are really, really burdening us, the things that are really holding us down. And that's what Christ brings to us. He brings us total freedom from the things that are really holding us back in our lives. And of course, we know that the number one thing that is burdening us, is holding us down, is our sin. It's our rebellion against God. And he's come to free us from that. He's actually come, when you think about it, to free us from ourselves. And and, and as we've been learning in the last couple of uh, months, really, as we've been in this now a number of weeks, we've we've been learning that, that he's been freeing us from our own Desire our own need, this, own, this human thing that we've got to, to make ourselves better, to improve ourselves. And as we've been seeing week after week, uh, not to discourage you, but the reality is, is just to be honest with ourselves, that's a burden. It's like, it's like we can never, ever get there. And that's really what Paul's been teaching, really, in the last couple of weeks especially, so deeply in chapter 2. So we're a third of the way through the letter. We've done two chapters, which means we're only a third of the way through it. And as I said a few weeks ago, there's kind of a breakdown of this letter, a little different than Paul's typical breakdown, where in the first two chapters, it's more or less biography. It's more or less Paul talking about his credentials as an apostle. And he felt the need to do that because these Judaizers had come into the church in Galatian and were basically saying, yeah, he's not really a capital A apostle. He's really not one of the the original dudes who lived with Jesus, who knew Jesus. And so his gospel, what he's teaching, is not quite all the way there. And so he felt the need to say, just a second. And then he goes ahead and proves it. He goes to Jerusalem, and he proves that, in fact, not that he's trying to prove and boast as to who he is, but he proves, based on the the fact that the capital A apostles in Jerusalem all agree and say, after they've heard what he's been preaching and teaching, they go, that's it. (laughs) That's all we preach and teach. So he proved that it was the same gospel, exactly the same gospel. And then we're going to see in these 
two chapters, chapter 3 and 4, that he's now going to move, what Paul typically starts with, to theology and doctrine, right? Words and ideas and concepts, but it's really simple. It's all really about who God is, what he has done, who that means we are, and how then we should live. That's really the, 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 it encapsulates theology and doctrine in the Bible. And that's what he's going to unpack, the nuts and bolts of justification, the gospel for everyday life. And then when we get to chapters 5 and 6, how you live this out, how the Christian lives it out in this world. And so to start, first of all, I want to take us back to chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, because they kind of echo what we just read this morning in the beginning of chapter 3. And it lets us in on what, why Paul's writing this letter and, and the kind of, quite frankly, angst he's feeling towards these false teachers, but also the disappointment that he's feeling towards the Galatian believers. He's a pastor. He's disappointed in them. And that's something that we saw and we needed to see. He says this, I am astonished, guys, that you are so quickly deserting him, Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so Paul's totally beside himself. He's really totally beside himself. I mean, he's a pretty bold preacher and writer anyway. We all know that about him, right? But in this particular case, he's, he's really jacked up. He's, he's, he's really angry about this. And as we've seen, it's, it's, it's anger not towards people in particular. It's not anger towards, you know, well, they're not saying what I said. It's about the gospel, it's the foundation of the church. And he's like, listen, if we don't get this right now, 2,000 years from now, the people in Squamish may not be gathering to hear God's word. I mean, that was the intensity and the importance of what was happening in that day. And that's why he felt that way. And so, as I've said, he proved that the capital A apostles in Jerusalem were preaching what he was preaching, exactly the same thing, Jesus plus nothing. It's just Jesus. <laughs> You don't need anything else. You don't need to work your way up to God's approval and acceptance. In fact, you can't. And after you've got Jesus, you you don't need to continue to get God to approve of you and accept you because he already does, and he can't do that any more than he already does. That's the gospel. It's awesome news. It's awesome news. And so he creates this, this, this situation for us. So here's what I think we need to hear today. Here's what I think we really need to hear today as we look at this. The life, and you guys know this, The life of a Christian is not a walk in the park. Amen? Anybody. (laughs) It's not a walk in the park, guys. It it isn't. It's not you trust in Christ for your forgiveness and eternal eternal life. And in between the point that you do that, your conversion, and until the day that you die and go to be with Jesus, life is good. It's grand. It's perfect. It's It's not. Most of us go through a period of time. I did. I don't know. If you didn't, it doesn't mean you're not as good a Christian. But I remember going through a period of time when I first came to the Lord. It was like, oh. Like, I mean, I had long hair, got it cut, right? I mean, everything changed. Smoker, non-smoker. Heavy drinker, a lot less. You know, I mean, things like that. Like, everything changed, though. But there was also a moment, a time, a season where I felt really different. Really significantly different. And sensed it. And then, like most of us, it's back to regular scheduled programming, right? It's like, whoops, what happened? I I, I was like a saint for a little while there. It was like things were good. And then, not so much. The struggles happen. 
Opposition happens. Suffering happens. Pain happens. Real experiences happen. And all of a sudden, the Christian life becomes a little bit more of a challenge, right? It's a challenge. Most Christians, I think, go through this time. But then we need this life of growing and trusting in God. And it's intentional on his part. It's not that, well, listen, you sinned so bad, you were so bad before Jesus died for you, and before you realized that, that, listen, there's a lot that we need to fix. It's not just that. It's not really that. It is, a, it is the fact, though, that we continue to live in the flesh. We continue to live in a sinful world that tempts us. But it's also part of the process of God wanting us to really see the gospel as not a one-time event, but the thing that actually drives us to live for him. And you know what? It'll drive us for eternity. 10,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, it'll still be the gospel. Do we see that? Do we understand? That's what God wants us to see, I believe. And so we, we get to this point, most of us arrive at this, what happened? Is this all there is? Is this it? Like, like this Christian life. I've been a Christian seven to 10 years, like they were in Galatia, and we're like, this is it? Man, this is hard work. Like, you know, I was expecting the good life. I was expecting to be a little richer, prosperity. You know, I was expecting these things. What is it? Have I missed something, or am I not hearing something from that preacher right? or that book? Maybe I need something else. Maybe I need to hear something, because it feels like I'm missing something. And, of course, there is more. Satan will tell you. There is more. Of course there's more. You guys are smart. You should know that. There's got to be more. Jesus plus this, we are told, will bring back the experience, will bring back the power to our lives. Here's what I think often, here's the mistake I think we often make as Christians about our enemy, is we think that what he wants to do is cause us to doubt God and lose our faith. That's what we think, that's what we worry about our kids, right? We worry about our kids that that's going to happen to them. Actually, I think what he wants, and I think it's proven through history and through the scripture, what he wants more than anything else is to have us believe in a gospel light, believe in another gospel, still thinking that we're following the same God and have got the real gospel, but now we are really being led astray. We're following a false gospel, which Paul would call is not really a gospel, but it's a watered-down version of the gospel. And then, oh my, things really begin to unravel for us, don't they? Going to church, giving, you know, whatever it might be, is just like an obligation. It's like, really? I don't know. God's out there, I think. He's in creation. And everything. So this, my friends, is what was happening in Galatia this day. Seven to 10, 12 years in, they're like, is this it? And certainly, right at that time, it's a perfect time for Satan, for the enemy, to send in some dudes to say, hey, guys, come on. You're smart guys. You're smart people. There is more. Let's think about it. And that's exactly what happens here. That's what's happening in Galatia, and it happens today as well. What Paul wants them to know, and you and I here today to know, is this. The gospel is all we need. It's all we need for our salvation, but it's all we need for all of life, for every day, for every circumstance. It's the gospel. And his synthesis is found in Romans chapter 1. It's beautiful. We've been over this before, but I have to bring it again. He says, for look, I am not ashamed. Not ashamed of what? Well, he says of the gospel, but I hope you're going to see today that he's not ashamed of one other aspect of the gospel, which really is the focus of the gospel. It's called the cross. It's, it's the cross, because that was the thing that was the most ashamed thing, especially for Jewish people in that day. 
the Messiah being crucified? Shameful. Shame on you for even suggesting that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, look, the righteousness of God, which we saw last week and spoke about, is revealed from faith for faith, from faith in for faith going forward. The righteous, look at this, this is the most important, shall live by faith. So it's not this momentary faith in Christ. Thank you. Got fire insurance. <laughs> you know, not going to go there when I die. But no, no, it's, it's faith for that, but it's also faith for living and the righteous we need. So that's what we need to see. Two things we're going to see today, I hope. Just two things, and you'll see it on your notes. But I also want to highlight this. For those of you who are looking at the notes sometimes and going, We didn't spend equal time on each one of the points. Yes, that's true. Today we're going to spend most of our time on point number one, because it is the point. And then we'll look at point number two. Point number one is going to be this. Keep Christ and his cross in your rearview mirror. That's what Paul's going to tell us today. Keep Christ and his cross in your rearview mirror. Secondly, then live completely in the power of the Holy Spirit. Number one, keeping the cross of Christ in your rearview mirror. Let's read these words one more time. O foolish Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So a quick overview of these five verses, as you heard them read earlier, I don't know if you noticed it, but a quick overview would tell you that that basically verse two is kind of funny, I think, when I read it. You know, Paul says, let me ask you only this. He says, let me ask you only this. And then he goes on to ask a whole pile of questions, right? It's, he's kind of teasing them, but that's what he says. And really, what, what, what it, it sounds like one question, but actually it's this. It's six questions in five verses in very staccato-like tone and words. Like, boom, boom, boom. Question, question. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Really, guys? And then he uses some pretty strange language. Now, I'm sure, think about it. When they received this letter, how would they have received this letter in that day? Foolish, right? They get this letter, and all of that, what they've read so far, I'm astonished at you. Foolish people. And then they read this. Well, I think that probably a good number of them, I would hope, would have felt, oh, dear, we're letting Paul down. I mean, we know how hard he preached the gospel to us, how, how hard he served in this community, what people said about him, but he still stuck with it. We're letting Paul down. Worse, we're letting Jesus down. I'm sure some of them thought that way, but I, but I also think, knowing human nature, that some of them probably responded like some people do today. Who does he think he is telling us this? <laughs> I'm sure at this point in this letter, many of you are sort of going, Glenn, can we, can we have a little lighter thing? <laughs> could, could, could you maybe translate these words, oh, foolish Galatians, could you translate them in a way that's like a, a little nicer, like more soothing? I wish I could do that. But I can't. I really can't. Many commentators who, who I've read, they, they comment that, um, uh, that's why they're called commentators, they, they, they say that it's, it's like in our English translations, we have words that kind of make, you know, they appeal to our kind of more genteel Christian culture, you know, not intentionally, but it's just, you don't want to maybe go to where it really is. One commentator, one very respected commentator said that the Greek could actually and should actually be translated this way. You unintelligent, senseless idiots. Thanks for coming. It's rather harsh, don't you think? 
Come on, it's, it's harsh to say that. Why would Paul be so nasty, do you think? This is what they're suggesting. That's the tone. That's the literal Greek. That's how they would have heard it in that day. That's, if you were a Greek, when you heard these words put together, two of them in a row put together that say this, you would feel like this person is being insulting. They're not being kind. They're not calling you a little, a little dumb. They're being really insulting. Why would he do it? Well, I want you to think about it. Why in the first place is Paul writing this letter? Why is he writing the letter? He's writing the letter because he has received a letter or he's received an oral report from someone who's come and said, hey, this is what's going on in Galatia, in the churches. This is what's going on, Paul. And what was it that he heard, do we think? Well, as we've already seen so far in the series, here's a thought. As we already know, men from Jerusalem, Jews from Jerusalem had arrived and they were calling into question what Paul had been preaching. These are those who had bewitched them, by the way. And that's also a very interesting word. It kind of means like evil eye. Remember that. It's about the eye, right? It means bewitched. They had implied that Paul didn't have the whole gospel. They, they probably did, I think, what anyone who desires to get you on their side would do. They would appeal to your pride. They would appeal to your pride because they're pretty pride, proudful, aren't they? Coming in saying, we've got something better for you. We've got a better gospel than the Apostle Paul. I think that's probably what they did. They may have put it this way. Come on. Come on, guys. You're smart people, right? You're smart guys. You should know that it's not that easy, really, to be accepted and approved by God. Paul's kind of watering it down. He's making it seem easier and more appealing. You know that it takes more than that, and you know that you can do it. You can do what's required. Paul's response might go something like this, paraphrasing what we've already read. So guys, you think you're that smart? You think you're that smart? You think that you and your human wisdom can come up with a better gospel? A a better way to save yourselves than the one that God himself came up with? Well, if you think that, then let me be brutally honest with you. You are, everybody say it, sorry. You're idiots. This is the force that he's putting this out there with. And I also have to think, have they forgotten who Paul is? I mean, really, have they forgotten who Paul is? Read Philippians 3 about all of his credentials. Hebrew of the Hebrew, Pharisee of the Pharisees, top guy in Gamaliel's class. He had three PhDs, for goodness sakes. Right? He, he was the, the most awarded and most decorated Jewish man in that day. That's why he was given the instructions to go to Damascus and wipe out this Christian cult. He was very well educated. He also says, as for the law, perfect, speaking of himself. Woo. And then he said, as far as he was concerned, all of that, all of those credentials, all of that intellect and wisdom that he had, he considered it rubbish. Filthy rags, he said. And then he said this. Why? Well, compared to this, that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from me working myself up to goodness, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith alone. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's settled, right? Paul starts off saying, you think you're so smart. (laughs) You're not. Stop it. Guys, stop listening to those guys. But stop listening to your own heads and hearts thinking you're so smart. Stop with all your questions and endless debates about what you need to add to the gospel. Just remember this and focus on this. Two words. Jesus crucified. That's why 3.1b is really the heart of this passage, of these five verses, where he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. It's the most important part of this passage. Some of your translations may say clearly instead of the word publicly. That's good translation. But the literal Greek for portrayed is really important. The literal Greek for portrayed is this. Graphically, graphically was Jesus portrayed. Graphically as crucified. Graphically. Or as Philip Ryken in his commentary, he said this. The word portrayed comes from the world of advertising. Some of you, if I had just said that without quoting somebody, would think, oh, Glenn's making this up. That's my background for some of you who don't know that was marketing and advertising. The word portrayed comes from the world of advertising. The Greeks used it to refer, to refer to, for example, to the kind of public notice posted to show that a property was up for sale. So like a for sale sign. What the Galatians had seen then was a graphic public display of the crucified Christ, Jesus having being placarded before them as if on a giant billboard on a large canvas. But it wasn't that. They didn't have Mel Gibson back then, right? They didn't have video. And this is really important for us to hear today. What they had was preaching. What they had was the word. What they had was you, 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 all of us, me, all of us, going out there and saying, this is the gospel. Publicly, clearly, graphically, and vividly portraying the cross. So what does this really mean then? What does this all mean? It means that the way in which Jesus was preached was fully focused on the cross and graphically. Paul painted a vivid picture for them, focusing on the cross. I mean, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. It's so consistent through all of the New Testament. It's so consistent. The only way that people come to faith in Jesus is not through apologetics. It's not through convincing them about Adam and Eve and creation and evolution and all the rest of this stuff. It's about the cross of Jesus Christ. It's always about that. It's the only thing. Guys, you remember Acts chapter 2, my favorite passage, because that's where we got started as a church when we planted the Rock Church. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes with power. Jesus said, you're going to need this power. Don't, Don't start going, like I told you to go, until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles. Peter, the guy who denied Jesus three times, foot and mouth of these disease guy, he preaches the gospel. It comes out of him like a miracle. And all the way through the preaching of the gospel, he, he's, he's, he's convicting the hearts of these men and women that are standing there, these Jewish men and women are standing there listening to them. And then he gets to this point where he goes, Christ, whom you crucified. Yeah, pretty heavy picture. It's at that point 
where the scripture records in verses 37 and 38. Now, when they, what? Heard this. Graphically displayed, vividly displayed, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he could have said, Two, just like we have. Obviously. Do you, know, do you not see how different we are at this moment in front of you? Especially me, Peter. Do you remember what I just did denying him three times? And then it records in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's the church being born on this day. So here's my question. Have you ever heard the story? Have you ever heard the story vividly and graphically presented and portrayed? Let me help you a little bit. Let me help you. There was a man He was sent from God. He was born of a virgin, basically into poverty. He was the son of God who came to us to love us and to save us. He lived an incredible, beautiful life. And then when he was 30 years of age, he began his public ministry and he began going about preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. That was all wonderful. It was amazing. Many of us followed him. I'm Paul. I wasn't there at the time, but many followed him, some of whom I persecuted. But here's the most amazing part. Everybody loved him that was poor and were outsiders who were sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. They loved him. Thousands started following him because they loved him. Why? Because they knew his heart. They were beginning to know who he was. But I'll tell you, there were also a group of people who hated him. They were people who were self-righteous, who thought that they had it all figured out, that they were gods unto themselves, and they hated him so much so that they trumped up charges against him, and then one of his own betrayed him to them. And then what happened is, well, I just have to tell you, He was brought before one of the most vicious Roman governors of the day. His name is Pontius Pilate. And Pilate kind of mocked him. Are you the king of the Jews? You know, treated him, whatever. And and, and Pilate actually wanted nothing to do with this, wanted to just hand him over. But the people had now gone crazy. And by the way, these people represented all of us. And they all screamed in unison, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate was like, well... I'm going to wash my hands of this. But by the way, as soon as I've done that, you can take him away and, and you, can, you can beat him a little bit. They tortured him. They stripped him of his clothing except his loincloth. And then they scourged him. Roman scourging was such that when the whip came around behind your back, it had little hooks in it. And when they pulled it away, flesh came away. And because he was called the king of the Jews, they decided to create a, a crown of thorns And they placed it on his head, and he started to bleed from his head. Most scourgings would kill a man. They didn't kill Jesus. Through all of this, he said said nothing. He was given opportunities to defend himself, and he said nothing. If that wasn't bad enough, 
They then forced him out into the streets. Those same men who people loved, who followed because they believed he might be the Son of God, the Messiah. And they put a a Roman cross on his back and they forced him to carry it down the streets between the people and they spit on him and they mocked him. And and, and they said, look, you're the son of God. You know, stop this. I guess he can't. What a loser. And then he got to Golgotha, the place of the skull where they crucified him and he laid down on the cross. And normally they tie those who are being crucified with ropes to the cross. In his case, they decided to drive spikes through his wrists and through both of his feet. And then they picked up the cross, these very strong Roman men. They picked up the cross, and there was a hole in the ground, and then they dropped it into the ground. And you could see, you could see his body shudder as the cross hit the ground. This began at noonday, and he hung there for three hours in the heat of the day. And then finally, at the very end, he called out to God, his father. And in front of all of them there, he said, it is finished. And he died. And the moment he died, the temple curtain was split in two. Thunder and lightning came over the whole place. People were full of fear. An innocent man was put to death. You know why that happened? That happened so that you could be forgiven of your sins. He paid the price for what you have done. We were all there. We were all responsible for this. Out of love, he came and he died for you. He died on the cross for you. And there's good news. He was who he said he was. Because he did what he said he would do. Three days later, he appeared, risen from the dead, And we saw him. I didn't personally, but the other disciples did. They saw his nail-pierced hands. They saw his side where the the Roman centurions, to make sure he was dead, came out and punctured his side and water poured out. This is the gospel. I'm giving it to you today. Do you want to believe in him? Do you want to receive his gift that he did for you today? That's how they did it, and probably a lot more, and probably a lot more. See, at the end of the day, the point is what they were trying to do is exactly what we see in this verse. They, they wanted, you need to, I need to, we need to see with our eyes Christ vividly and graphically displayed as crucified. Got to see it. Have you? Have you seen it? Have you seen it? I hope so. I know many of you have had. I've heard your testimonies. But today we're being asked by the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, to revisit it, to see it again, to see him clearly portrayed as crucified. A Christian is that person, is someone who has seen Jesus Christ crucified. But there's one more aspect to it. Eleven years ago this summer, we were over on Salt Spring Island, um, Janice and Jonathan and Matt and myself, and visiting my sister and Mike, and my mom and dad were there. 
uh, Tom and Eunice. And we had a picture taken on July 17th. It was my sister's birthday uh, on her property on Salt Spring Island by this big tree and his mom and dad and everybody's there. And we're, we're having this picture taken and it's awesome. It's great. It's wonderful. And, uh, you know, it was just, I still have it. It's a great picture. I love it. It means a lot to me now because of what happened a little later. On August 10th, mom and dad had flown home to Toronto. Uh, we were living in, in uh, Langley. I was out golfing with some buddies in Chilliwack and uh, we had a great time. Um, I think, I, think I, I won, so it was a pretty good game. But then I came home, driving home from, um, um, from Chilliwack to Langley, and I got into the house, and I walked into the house, and all three of our boys were in the family room watching TV, and they were oddly quiet and didn't make any eye contact with me. And then I went upstairs <clears throat> into the kitchen, and Janice came away from the sink, and she looked at me, and she said, Dad's gone. I knew I might need this. She told me my dad had passed away of a heart attack a few hours ago. For those of you who have experienced the loss of a father or a mother or a brother or a sister or a child, someone very close to you, you have tasted something that many other people have not tasted. There's no way to explain it My father was ill when we were in Salisbury. We knew, but the suddenness of it, the complete loss, it's it's done, not going to talk to him again, not going to see him again. I know some of you experienced that today, recently, and it's hard, isn't it? It really is hard. But I bring it up only to say this, we've tasted something, haven't we? There's a taste to it. There's This is the gospel. This is what we need to see in the gospel. That's what they saw in that day. That's what Paul is pushing them back to. He's saying, you need to do this. The key to living by faith is keeping the cross in your rear view mirror. The key to every day of your life is keeping the cross in your rear view mirror. That's the key. We need to see it and we need to taste it. John Stott said this. It's beautiful. The gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Jesus, about Christ. Not an invitation for us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. And so now what, what, what happens to those who have been saved by the blood of Christ, who have seen Christ crucified, who have been changed by it because they've tasted it? They live completely in the power of the Spirit. Paul goes on to say, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Really quickly, there are three amazing things that we see in these verses. They're right there. There's receiving, beginning, and perfecting. First, the instant that you hear by faith and believe the gospel, you receive the Holy Spirit of God. The very instant. There's nothing that you need to do Some churches might teach that. It's wrong. There's nothing you need to do at that moment to receive the Holy Spirit. It's at that instant that you receive the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what Paul said and was promised back in Acts 2.38, right? He said this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will, not maybe, at a time later, you will receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So remember now, that same day, that same day is the day that the apostles 
received the Spirit. And so Paul is saying to those in Galatia at this time, and that's why the language is so intense. He's saying, again, he's flabbergasted. He's saying, are you so dumb, stupid, foolish to think that? Are you so foolish not to remember what that experience was like? The power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you? He asks the rhetorical question, which is like asking, are you really dumb enough to think that you got him, you got the Holy Spirit because of something that you did? Seriously, guys, give your heads a shake. He says, listen, you got the gift of the Holy Spirit only because of what you heard and believed by faith, Jesus crucified. That's why. It's what he has done that has given this to you. So secondly, we receive, and then he goes, you begin by the Spirit. This is, this is great. You begin what? It's also very important. You can't begin the Christian life, the Christian life, without the Holy Spirit. Your life as a Christian doesn't begin until you've received the Holy Spirit. Now, before you place your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is working on you. He's working on people here in this room today, whether you're in Christ yet or not, or are in Christ, he's continuing to work in us, to perfect us and do a work in us. And that's the last part, which is the amazing part. It's the transforming reality that you have received by faith in Christ is perfection. Now, let me explain that, because that's important. When we believed the gospel, like I went on about last week, when we have grasped the gospel and have been cut to the heart, that is the moment when we stop doing what we've always been doing, which is trying to attain our salvation, our acceptance and approval from God and by and through our own efforts. The word that's used here is, that Paul uses for being perfected is, is a beautiful word. It's the word in the Greek, epiteleo, literally means completion. And so what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, he's describing, once again, what all of us do to be seen as or feel righteous in and of ourselves. We are constantly striving to complete ourselves, is what he's getting at. We, we place our trust before we come to Christ, and then after a while, when the human life, the Christian life, becomes a little difficult, we return to that, the efforts and ability to make ourselves acceptable to God and everyone else, to complete ourselves. Now, most of you in this room have probably seen a pretty famous movie a number of years ago, right? It was the movie called Jerry Maguire. Anybody remember that movie? It's a classic. Tom Cruise says to Rene Zellweger, what? Was I the only one who saw this movie? You complete me. Oh, my goodness. I think every guy who was watching that chick flick with his wife or girlfriend was probably like, oh, dear. I don't know if I could say that. But that was actually an amazing statement at the time because it was a bit of a nod to part of our culture at that time and today that was like, that's kind of the thing that a woman would think, not a man. So for a man to be saying that, that was a pretty, pretty important nod at the time, right? That, that you as a woman could complete me because it really in our culture it had always been sort of thought that, well, no, I need a man to complete me, you know, that's what apparently, but most women kind of probably missed that subliminal message because they had their eyes focused on Tommy, right? Right, because Tom and what he had said. But the point is clear. Here's the point. Whether you are a man or a woman, you are looking for someone to complete you. Another man or another woman to complete you. To children 
or having a children, to, to a career, to, to more money, to a thinner and more buff body, right? To a house, to a bigger house, or anything else to complete you. And here's the truth. We know this is true, and yet we stay in the cycle. The truth is that we never get there. We never get there. We're never fully complete, but that's what this life seems to be all about, is the struggle to get there. And before we became Christians, like we did with our pursuit of righteousness, we've tried everything. We've trusted in everything other than God to make us feel complete. Paul wants the church in Galatia, and the Holy Spirit wants you and I here today to know that the way the Spirit entered your life is the way that he will continue your life. It's the same way. Paul says, after you begin with the Spirit, are you trying to complete yourself through your own efforts? Guys, you've got the Holy Spirit of God in you, available to you. I'm preaching to myself here right now. I don't know if you're listening, but I'm preaching to myself. This is so important for us to hear. His pointed questions are intended to help us see how dumb it would be to believe that. He's lovingly trying to do exactly what he says the Scripture is to do in our lives. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture, all Scripture is, look at this, breathed out by God. Now, most of you scholars know that breathed out means this is the Holy Spirit. Some of your translations will have, is inspired by God. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now look at this. That the man or woman of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. Lastly on this point, and before we conclude, I'll just say this. There's something called our standing and our state, Right? The moment that we are in Christ, that we've received the Holy Spirit, in God's eyes, in God's eyes, we are perfect. We are perfectly forgiven. We are perfectly seen as Christ. Is that true? Are we, do we believe that? Are we? Well, no. There's our position and there's our practice. There's our standing and there's our state. But the reality is, guys, the reality is, and this is the gospel for you today, If you're not in Christ yet, then receive him and come into his forgiveness and into that standing before God, which is perfect, forgiven, and holy, but then also live in it. Because the moment you place your faith in Christ, the moment the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you are complete. Just don't forget it. Just don't forget it, right? Don't forget it, but we do. Paul concludes with verses 4 and 5 in our passage today by saying this. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul actually cuts himself off here. You see the dash there? That's actually verse 5. He cuts himself off there. Because he's, he all of a sudden has an inspirational thought, from the Holy Spirit, by the way, uh, about what we're going to look at next week, but he cuts himself off there with the dash. That's why that's there. It's a cutoff of, of thought and idea. But here he finishes with this. Here's what I, I, I want to suggest to you he's finishing with. He's finishing with, I know you're in a battle, guys. I know you're in a battle. I know the Christian life is not a picnic. You've suffered many things in the last 7, 10, 12 years. But listen to me. 
It's not been in vain. You've been preaching Christ crucified to your kids, to your community. People are coming to faith in Jesus. It's not been in vain. And here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. The one who gave you the Spirit and has done great works in you and through you to have these things be accomplished in your life and in the church, he's perfect. Perfectly capable of completing you if you will trust him and allow him to do so. So the key for us today is, again, to living by faith is keeping the cross in your rearview mirror. Pray with me, would you?